Last week we were studying Yeshua Perik Beis. <coughs> we <coughs> we were studying the adventures of the of the of the spies, the two spies in Yericho. So I want to elaborate a little bit before we proceed. I want to elaborate on one point that came up last week. It says that the woman Rachav Hazona. It says that she hid the spies, and when it describes how she hid them, there are actually a couple of psukim about it. The first pasuk that says she hid them, it says, and she hid him. So we noted that the various commentaries asked, what do you mean she hid him? There were two spies, is the Hebrew grammatical form for the singular. She hid him, why only him? So we noted that the second time it talks about hiding them in Pasuk Vav, it says, and she hid them. Some say that was a second hiding, some say that was uh, repeating, elaborating on the first hiding. But either way, there it says plural. But here, the first time it says, so we said there were different explanations. There were different explanations. Some say it means she hid each one. Some say it means she hid them both together as if they were one in a small area. But we mentioned a midrash. We mentioned a midrash. That Rashi brings a midrash that he brings Hashabshad as well, but he brings a midrash that uh, Tanchuma, he says that the two spies, the, the Midrash identifies them as Pinchas and Kalev. So Kalev was the veteran spy from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. And Pinchas was the famous uh, biblical figure who killed Zimri and Cosby, was, got the Brisi Shalom, was elevated to the Kahuna. And Pinchas, he says, was invisible. Pinchas they could not see to begin with. Pinchas was like a Malach. And therefore he was invisible, and, and he couldn't be seen. This is a midrash. The midrash elaborates that Pinchas was like a malach. When he wanted to, he could make, him, make himself invisible to ordinary people. Malachim can't always be seen by people. And that's why he didn't need to be hid. He didn't need to be hidden because he, 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 there wasn't a problem for him to avoid detection. So, I wanted, so we mentioned uh, briefly last week that this is connected to the midrashic idea that Pinchas was Eliyahu, and Eliyahu was a person who behaved in a supernatural way on various occasions. I want to just elaborate a little bit on this, on this discussion of Pinchas being a malach, or like a malach. So the, the, origins, the, the origins of this idea that Pinchas is considered like a malach, the origins seem to be based on several psukim in the Navi Malachi. Malachi is one of the Treyasar, one of the small Levim. And particularly the psukim in Malachi combined with a Midrashic idea, accepted by various Rishonim, including the Ralbag, that Pinchas and Eliyahu were the same person. Pinchas was the son of Elazar, a Cohen, grandson of Aaron Akoin. He was apparently alive hundreds of years later, because there are mentions of him in the time of Davina Melech, that there was a Pinchas ben, ben Elazar Akoin was, 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 was a figure mentioned briefly hundreds, that was hundreds of years later, that the Jews were in Eretz Canaan, time of Yeshua and the Shoftim for hundreds of years before the time of Davina Melech. And Pinchas seems to have been alive much, much later at that time. I'm not sure if everyone agrees it was the same Pinchas, but some of Arshim at least understand that was the same Pinchas. He lived for an extraordinarily long period of time. And there was a Midrash that identifies Pinchas, again, grandson of Aaron from the period of the Jews in the desert, with Elio Anavi. Elio Anavi was a Navi who operated in Eretz Israel in the time of King Achav, which, again, which was decades after the beginning of the kingdom. Achav was one of the was was not was was, was, was one of the later kings of later later kings of Israel. So the, the midrash identifies Pinchas with with Elio. The Ralbag has a very interesting explanation of this. The Ralbag accepts this. The Ralbag is a rationalist and often uh, a more philosophically minded Rishon. He's, he often interprets things more naturalistically, but in this case he actually agrees with the Midrash. He, he, he rejects many Midrashim that 
uh, that suggests all kinds of miraculous doings. He likes to interpret things usually on a much more down-to-earth and shot type level, but in this case he agrees with Chazal that Pinchas and Elio were the identical individual, that Pinchas lived an extraordinarily long period of time, centuries and centuries. Partly, he says, on his, with, based on his rationalist principles. Well, we know clearly, he says, Pinchas was an extraordinary individual who lived for centuries, because he's mentioned in the time of King David. And we know Elio is an extraordinary individual, and they share certain, certain things, they share certain biographical characteristics, so it's better to conflate them into the same person. It was one person who had uh, extraordinary nisim about his life, rather than say they were two separate individuals. But whatever the arguments are, there is a, a major midrashic idea that Pinchas was Elio. Now, in Sefer Malachi, in Sefer Malachi, Malach in Hebrew is, uh, is famously a, uh, a bit of an ambiguous term. Malach has two meanings. The, the simple meaning of Malach in Hebrew often means messenger. The Jews sent Malachim to Edom and to Moab, to the various nations, asking for emissaries, uh, diplomats, asking for, uh, for, for the right of passage through their lands. Malach often just means messengers. Malach can also mean angel. When we hear the word Malach, we're, we're probably more used to hearing it, and certainly in rabbinic literature, we're more used to hearing it as meaning an angel. Malachim. Malachi Elyon. Malachi Elokim. We, we often use it to mean uh, angel. And the truth is, in the Torah itself, sometimes the term is ambiguous. So, Parshas Vayishlach. The very first words of Parshas Vayishlach, Vayishlach Yaakov, Malachim, Eleisav, Rashi already brings. Some say that Rashi and the Mepharshim talk about, were these messengers? Did he send emissaries to negotiate with Esav? Human emissaries? Or were these, uh, or were these, um, were these Malachim? Were these angels? There, there, there are disagreements in the commentaries. And many places throughout the Torah, there actually are disagreements among the commentaries whether the term, whether the term, uh, Malach means angel or means human who's, who's, who is a messenger of some sort. Even where the Torah clearly seems to refer to a divine messenger, throughout Barathees, the hugger sees a Malach and Yaakov wrestles with a Malach, even those Malachim, which are pretty clearly not humans, they're pretty clearly, uh, it seems that those were angels, the Ralbag has a unique shita, the Ralbag has a unique interpretation that those Malachim were actually people, they were Nevi'im. They were human Nevi'im, the three angels that Avram saw, they, 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 he, saw the, he saw three Anashim, later when they got to Lot, they refers to them as Malachim. Those were humans. According to the Ralbag, most, most of the Malachim referred to in Chumash were actually humans. One who appeared to Hagar, the ones who appeared to Hagar, the ones who uh, appeared to Lot. Those were humans, and the, the Ralbag brings in support a midrash that says that the Navi is called Malach. Because again, Malach means messenger. Primarily, the, the etymology of the word is messenger. A Navi is a messenger of Hashem. So when the Torah refers to Malach, the Ralbag says it often refers to a human Navi. And as a matter of fact, that he brings a midrash that goes on Sefer Malachi. It says, the Pasuk says in Perak Bey's Pasuk Zayin, Kisifse Kohen Yishmuru Das, the story of Akshumi Piyu, that the lips of the Kohen. Will, 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 will guard knowledge and people will seek Torah from, uh, from his mouth. Because he's a messenger of Hashem. Midrash says, We're talking about a human being here, a Kohen. Uh, we're talking about a human being. And, uh, and he's called a Malach. So the Rabbi says, the Midrash tells us that the term Malach in Tanakh is often used to mean a Navi, who's a messenger, a prophet, who's a messenger from Hashem. Yes? So the Ralbag, so I don't know anyone who says that was a Navi. There are, there are a few places where the Ralbag interprets Malach as a as a, as an angel, as a prophetic, and there he says it was a prophetic vision. So one example is 
Jacob wrestling with the angel. That he was not he was not fighting with another. He says he was that that was a vision he saw. And I, burning bush. I'm, I, I know he says the burning bush was a vision. Whether I forget, I forget whether the Torah you know, used the word Malak, but I do know for, for a fact that he interprets. I do recall for he interprets that to have been a, a vision, a prophetic vision. So this pasuk of the, the, where the Torah calls the Kohen a Malak, the midrash says one midrash says that it means a navi is called a Malak. But in Malak, so again, the, the, the whole the whole say for Malachi is called is, is named after uh, Biyad Malachi. That the that, that that the whole the whole the whole Navi is named uh, that, that the whole Navi is named is, na- is named Malachi. That uh, that that these that these were that these were that he, he was a messenger of Hashem. Um, he was a messenger of Hashem. And that would seem to be the meaning. That would seem to be the, with Malachi. We say usually is a name, but it's. Uh, but the, the, the word Malachi is all about Malachi. And there are three psukim that concern us with our discussion of Eliyahu and Elio being called a Malach, Elio and Penchas being called a Malach. So the first passage is one we just read. That the Kohen is called a Malach. Then later, Malachi is pretty short. Malachi is only three prakim long. In, the, in Peri Gimel, Pasuk Aleph, it says, Hineni shaleach Malachi, I will send my... Malach, whether again, whether it means an angel or a uh, messenger of some sort. Some, Ibn Ezra says it might mean Mashiach ben Yosef, a human, a messenger of God. Others say an angel. So Hashem says, Neshalech Malachi. And it says, Umalach habris, Asher atem chafetzim bo, Asher atem chafetzim, the, the Malach of the bris, the, the, the Malach of the, of the bris, the covenant. Hineba Amar Hashem Tavakos. He's coming. So this pasuk refers to the Malach habris. And the third, again, which might mean Mashiach, it might mean Mashiach ben Yosef, it might mean an angel. This is the second pasuk that I want to discuss. And the third pasuk is the very end of Malachi, almost the very end, the second to last pasuk, I believe. This is, we read in one of the Haftaris. Behold, I will send to you Elio Hanavi. Hashem says, I'm going to send to you Elio Hanavi. This does not use the word Malach. But uh, but here it refers to Eliyahu and Navi. So the midrash that says that Pinchas was invisible, Pinchas the spy turned invisible. He could turn because he was like a malach. The midrash brings the first of the, the, the brings this pasuk, the first of these pesukim that I mentioned. It says in in, in Perik Bey's pasuches, sorry Perik Bey's pasuk Zion. It says Sifse Kohen Yishmurudas. We're referring to a Kohen, and it says Ki Malach Hashem Tivakosu. The Kohen is called a malach. So Chazal in this Midrash, Darshan Malach to meet angel, and they say the Kohen is an angel. That referred to Pinchas. Pinchas was a Kohen. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron a Kohen, and he was given the briskun asolam. Pinchas was the Kohen, famous Kohen, and he was the one who was like a Malach. So the, the Midrash is interpreting this Pasuk to mean that the Kohen, at least this particular Kohen, is called a Malach. The Pasuk in beginning of Perek Gimel, that Hashem says, Malachi, which again, later it says, Here it says, I'm going to send a Malach. There are Midrashim that say that this Malach refers to Elio Navi also, and it calls him Malach Abris. It calls, it calls the, this Malach, which is, which is Elio, according to some interpretations, it calls him the Malach Abris. And that's actually the source. We, we, that we, at, at, a, at a Bris Mila, we have a Kisei Shel Elio, and we say Malach Abris, and that's one of the, the things they recite. There is, uh, the the Moel says Malach Abris. And there's a tradition in, in Pirkei Jerebeliezer, an old midrash from the time of the Gaonim, at least, that says that the, what's the connection between Eliyahu and Abris? The connection is that Eliyahu was a great kanoi. He, he was very upset at the Jewish people. He was very zealous. He was very vengeful toward the Jewish people. He was outraged at their 
abominable behavior, their idolatry, their perfidy toward Hashem and his Nevi'im. He called for punishment and destruction. And when, when Hashem asked him, what are you doing, Elio? What do you want? You know, what, what is your posture here? Uh, he, at this point, he was running for his life. He was bitter. He was running for his life from Izebel, who had uh, threatened him with immediate death. So he complained bitterly. He said, the people are, are terrible sinners. They've abandoned Hashem. They, they worship idols. They killed all the Nevi'im. I'm the only one left. He didn't know that Avadi had saved other Nevi'im as well, apparently. But they, I'm the only one left and, left, and now they want to kill me. So one of the things he said was uh, that, uh, that they abandoned your bris. That's brischa azavu, I think it says. They abandoned your bris. So Hashem, we know in different Midrashim, Hashem is not happy when people, even great Nevi'im and Tzadikim, criticize the Jewish people. When, when Moshe criticized the people at the burning bush, he said they won't believe me, so Hashem told him to put his hand into his, into his bosom and take it out, and it was Zaras. Zaras is the punishment for Lashon Hara, because Hashem was critical of Moshe for, for being uh, cynical toward the Jewish people, for criticizing them for the lack of trust. Later it says, Yeshayah says, in, in Perak Aleph and Yeshayah, he said, that he's betocham tmeis vasayim. He criticized the Jewish people as being uh, as being am tmeis vasayim. He was punished by having a burning coal placed on his lips. Hashem does not like it in general when neviim are critical of the too critical of the Jewish people. So the midrash in Pirkei Eliezer says Hashem told Eliyahu, Eliyahu, you are saying they abandoned my bris. You're not being fair to my people. They've sinned. They've done wrong. But you shouldn't say they abandoned my bris. I swear to you, I'll show you that the Jewish people have not abandoned the bris. The Jewish people are faithful to the bris. Every time a Jewish person makes a bris, you'll see that they make the bris and that they keep the bris. So this midrash that says Elio, that Hashem promised Elio that he will witness the Jews doing the bris is interpreted by some later authorities to mean that Elio actually appears. Elio was taken away. Elio ends his career by being taken up to the Shemayim in, uh, in fire, a chariot of fire. And... It's not exactly clear what happened to him after that. We'll discuss that soon. But he apparently transcended human form at that point. And based on this Midrash and Pirkei Rebbe that says that, that Hashem told Elio, you'll see that Jews keep the bris, there is a tradition that Elio actually appears at a bris, and that's why we have Kisei Shel Elio, and that's the minhag to say Malach bris, because based on this Pasuk that Malach bris was Elio, that Hashem, sent, Hashem told Elio, you'll see the Jewish people still keep the bris. I, I was reading a. I was reading in preparation for my share. I was reading a, an article online. I, I'm not sure who these guys are, but apparently they're fanatical, fanatical, uh, Maimonidean rationalists who have no patience for anything not on the Rambam, for anything too uh, that's not rationalistic and philosophical enough. So they were just bashing away at this idea of Elio Malachabris. They were they were they were denying the whole authenticity of Pirkei Ruliezer. Okay, we don't find this in Gaonic literature. We don't find it in. Uh, in the Rambam, it's, it's nonsense, it's ridiculous, we, we should abandon this stupid notion that Elio is Malach Abris. But it is in Pirkei Jubilezer, which is widely considered an, an important rabbinic source, if it may, it may be relatively late, time of the Geonim. But Pirkei Jubilezer is a real source that Elio is called Malach Abris. The actual minog of Kisei Shel Elio is, uh, is, on, is on shakier ground. It's mentioned in, in some Rishonim, the Arzeruah, the Shbole Aleket, mentioned this custom, though those are important medieval authorities, they mentioned this custom. They attribute it to various Gaonic works. Uh, I, I, think I, I think I saw they brought down Shvalei Aleket attributes it to the Halachas Gedolos, the, the Bahag, an important Gaonic work. It's not an Arab edition of the Bahag, but he attributes it to the Bahag. The Arzuru attributes it to Shri Ragon, one of the great Gaonim. We don't have it in our collection of the works of Shri Ragon. Our collection is not complete. In any event, 
we have these Gaonic and medieval sources that connect Elio to the bris. It's based on this pasuk of Malacha bris. Again, Malacha bris. You know, a lot of the psukim and navi are are very uh, are very elliptical. They're open to a variety of interpretations. And this, by no means, is this necessarily pasuk shot that refers to Elio. Elio is mentioned in the end of Paragimel. This pasuk in the beginning of Paragimel, it's not clear that it means Elio. But there, there are there are Madrashim, there are these early, these ancient works that attribute to Elio, and Elio is called Malach, he's called the Malach Abris. And earlier it says, Sifsei Kohen, Yishmeru Das, Ki Malach Hashem Tevakosu, that the Kohen is called the Malach, and that was the source of the Midrash that says that Pinchas, who is the same as Elio, apparently could become, he, he's called like a Malach, he could become invisible like a Malach who doesn't have to be seen. I should note that, uh, I mentioned this I think briefly last week, in, in, toward the beginning of Elio's adventures, we find that that uh, Elio is a wanted man. He's a wanted fugitive because he turned off the rain. It says that Elio was so angry that the Jewish people were worshiping idols. If Ashir ever gets there, we'll discuss that story in more detail. But he says that the, Elio was so angry, was so uh, outraged that the Jews were committing were committing idolatry. He said, "I swear there shall be no rain." unless I say so. There will be no rain in this land unless I say so. And there was a terrible famine and drought in Israel. And Achav was furious. Again, it's a very interesting frame of mind. Achav was a dyed-in-the-wool idolater, but he still believed Elio had the power to turn off the rain. He still considered him uh, the most wanted man in the world for turning off the rain. So, so one day Elio appears. He appears to Ovadia. Ovadia was an interesting figure. Ovadia was one of uh, the, the right-hand men of King Achav. Yachov was a consummate Russia, but Ovadia was a tzaddik. Ovadia was a great tzaddik. One of the triasher was actually Ovadia. Chazal identified the Midrashim, and Chazal identified that Ovadia in Sefer Malachim as a, uh, a, leading, uh, a leading figure in the reign of Achav with, Ovad, with Ovadia Hanavi. But the, one way or another, the Ovadia there was a great tzaddik. The, the Psukim say that he pleaded to Elio. He said, I, I hid the hundred Nevi'im when Ezevel was exterminating Nevi'im. I hid them and I, I, you know, at, at great, great expense. I provided them with food. I, I, I hid all these, uh, I hid all these, I hid all these Nevi'im. So Ovadia was a, Ovadia was a great tzaddik. And he worked for Achav. He worked for Achav. That was his, uh, this is only Chelik Beis of Treyasar, but Ovadia was one of the Treyasar. But uh, I'm pretty sure he's one of the Treyasar, but he, he worked for Achav. So Elio appears to Ovadia and says, go tell your master, I'm here, I'm Elio. So Ovadia says, Ovadia is, is terrified. Ovadia says, what did I ever do? I, 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 I tried so hard, I did the right thing, I saved the Nevi'im. You're telling me to tell Achav, Hine Elio, he's going to come, and you're going to disappear somewhere, and Ovadia is going to be furious, Achav will be furious, and he'll kill me. You know? He said, you're going to disappear. What does it mean, you're going to disappear, and where's he going to go? So some of Hashem say it means that uh, Elio and other places we find a wind would carry him and he would just reappear somewhere else. Avadi said, I know how you work. You're not, you're not bound by the regular rules of, uh, of place and space. You'll disappear. Winds will carry you who knows where. He'll never find you again. So that was the minute of Elio. So there it didn't, it didn't say he'll become invisible, like Pinchas could just turn invisible and the, and, and the, and the king of Yericho's men wouldn't find him. It says that he would uh, be carried away by winds. Okay, but he was a supernatural figure. And over there, he would sometimes he would be carried away by winds, and sometimes he could simply uh, turn invisible, according to the midrash over here. There's actually a fascinating literature. When we say Elio was a malach, and we call him a malach, we generally say that that's what happened 
after that point, which he, where he ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. His Allah Hashemayim, Eliyahu, went up to the heavens in a chariot of fire. Uh, his disciple Elisha had the famous cry, Avi, Avi, Rechav Yisrael of Harashim, my, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel. He lamented his disappearance. So after he disappeared to Shemayim in a chariot of fire, that's usually when we say that he was some kind of malach after that. The question is, was he really considered a malach earlier, before he had that experience? Um, this Midrash apparently says yes. This Midrash that says that the Navi is like a malach, that says, Tifse Kohen Yishmur Das, that he was called a malach even here, even back hundreds of years earlier in the story of the Richel, he could turn invisible and uh, be like a malach. But in many contexts, we assume that his malach status, his malach status, I think, was later, when he went up to Shemayim. There's a uh, famous and fascinating tshuva of the Trumas Hadeshen. Trumas Hadeshen was asked, he says... Is Elio dead or not? Is he still alive or not? He says, you know, halachic question, he says, could his wife remarry? After, was she a widow when he disappeared, or was she still a married woman whose husband was, uh, you know, mystic things were happening to him? He says, sorry? Elio's family? So I don't know, it's a good question. Yeah, I don't think we know much about him. So the Truman Sedation acknowledges that it's not really, you know, so, such a practical question because... You know, that's a long time ago and she's not around anymore. Oh, well, maybe someone else will be so good to have that kind of experience. He says, if, if, such an, if such an elevation, a divine elevation, a divine transcendence occurs to anybody else, what's the halacha? Is the. Is the. Is, 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 is such a woman considered a widow? Is, in other words, is the, is, the, is the person still alive in the halachic sense or not? Obviously, you know, we believe that the soul is preserved after death. So we believe that death is not permanent. We believe, we say this at, at funerals, that, that we write on the Matseva, that a person's soul is preserved eternally. That's true. So that there's life for the soul, but in a halachic sense, the body is dead. The person is considered dead in a technical halachic sense. The question is, we know Elio is alive in some sense, but the question is, is he alive in the ordinary halachic sense of being alive or not? And the practical nafkamina is, could his wife remarry? Other questions, Yerusha, I don't know, we can have other questions as well. But the question is, the famous question of the Truma Sedeshin 500 years ago, 600 years ago, Eishas Elio, Eishas Elio Muteris. Is she Muteris or not? He answers yes, he answers, he answers, she is Muteris. Based on various uh, sources, he says, it says Eishas Ish is prohibited, the wife of a man is prohibited, below Eishas Malach. The wife of a malach is not prohibited. She's not considered a married woman anymore. Her husband turns into a malach. So the position of the Truma Sedeshen is that, is that Elio is not considered a, li- a human being anymore. He's considered a, a malach now and not a human being in the regular sense. Many Akronim discuss this back and forth. Again, it was never really a practical question, but many Akronim for the, in the theoretical sense discuss this point. Was Elio considered still a a malach, or a, a, still considered a human being, or was he considered transformed into a malach after his uh, ascension to Shemayim? But again, my understanding is that that discussion refers to after he had the experience with the flaming chariot and rising to the heavens. Here, hundreds of years earlier, I, I didn't think anybody said he's actually a malach in a halachic sense, but still, the Midrash does call him a malach. Even now, he was called a malach, at least to a certain extent, to the extent that he could turn invisible and therefore didn't need to be hidden. Okay. We'll, we'll encounter Elio again, I guess. I said, if, if our share ever proceeds through through Yoshua, through, Shmu, through, through uh, Shoftim, through Shmuel, and we get to Malachim, we'll get to Elio. But in the meantime, let's proceed through Yoshua. So we, we learned last week that Rachav hid the spies. 
and she sent uh, in a you know, masterful exercise in misdirection. She sent the men out uh, on a wild goose chase, chasing the spies uh, toward the river, back toward the Jewish encampment. Now, after they were gone, the heat, and she locked, they locked the door, according to some authorities, to keep anybody else from, in, from in, intruding on their house. After that, after they were gone, so it says... She then doubled back and went to the spies now, and she had a conversation with them. So we're up to Perik Bay's Pasuches. It says, Vehema Terem Yishkavun, the Salam Alagog. Before they had gone to sleep, she ascended to the Gag, to uh, the roof, to talk to them, to, 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 have, to have a discussion with them. So it says, Alehem, she went up uh, onto them. It means Alehem with an Aleph, not an Ayin. It means to them, to, adjacent to them. She came to, uh, she came to them to, to, to have a meeting with them to discuss their mission and, and, and what she had to say about it. So Pasuk Tess, it says, Vatomer, it says, Vatomer Elhan Hashim, that she, uh, she spoke to the people. She said, Yadati, I know, I know that Hashem has given over this land to you, that this land is yours, you're, you're, you're going you're gonna to conquer this land. That the terror of you has overcome our people. And because the, our, our morale has dissolved, our, our morale has melted, we, we, we have no... Uh, we have no... No, uh, no defiance left, no... 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 Uh, no no, no, no strength left to, to fight you. She went on. He said, We have heard that Hashem has dried up the, the water of the Yamsuf. She heard about Kriyas Yamsuf. She, we heard about that Hashem has dried up the water of the Yamsuf in, in front of you. When you left Egypt, but that's one thing we heard. Second, what you have done to the two Amorite kings, Shabbat Yarden on the other side of the Jordan. She was already on the west side of the Jordan. The, the, the Amorite king, Sichon and Og, were on the east side of the Jordan. You exterminated them. You utterly annihilated their, uh, their, their, their men, their armies, their, their presence. Vanishma, we heard all this. We heard about Kriyas Yamsev. We heard about uh, Sichon and Og. We heard all this. Our hearts have melted. od ruach be'ish uh, no, no man has any spirit left in him. Because we know, the way some commentaries explain, because we know that we, we have no morale left, we have no, uh, no, no defiance left in us. We recognize that Hashem, your God, is He's the Elohim, in the heavens above, and we have no hope of, of successfully defying There's a very interesting midrash that says uh, it, that, 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 again, Rachav is a zona, which according to most commentaries means she was a prostitute, a harlot, and there is a midrash that, that imposes a um, sexual connotation on this pasuk. It says, nobody, she knew from her professional experience, nobody had any arousal, nobody had any, uh, any libido left for, for women. Lokama did not rise. That could be a reference to male sexual arousal. I'm not sure, but either way, it means that the midrash says it means that there was no, there was no uh, people were so depressed and so demoralized. She knew from her professional interactions with them that there were, that they had no no sexual desire left because they were just utterly demoralized and uh, broken. Rashi says 
no ruach, afilu lishkav amisha. And the midrash says, Rashi brings the midrash. There was she was a very um, she was a very prolific uh, worker in her industry. She says there was no sour nugget. There was no. Uh, she was apparently a high class courtesan. The sour, the the sour sarim, the nigidim, the, the aristocrats, the leaders were consorting with her, and there was nobody who had not been with her. She, 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 had, connect, she had relations with them all. And the Midrash says, She was 10 years old when the Jews left Egypt, and she worked in this uh, line of work for 40 years. Started as a child, and we, we, would, call that, uh, we would call that child abuse, but she uh, worked for 40 years as a, uh, as a prostitute. V'zonsa kol shana. And she uh, and she did this for forty years, and she knew exactly what. So she was well she was well acquainted with the the innermost thoughts of the of her of her clientele, and that's how she could say that's how she could say that the that the that nobody has any nobody even has any arousal left. Nobody has any no, today. People are just so hopeless. It's, uh, we're done. You know, there's no chance of defying the Jewish people. This midrash that says for forty years she she she, she worked in this uh, in this type of work. So we mentioned earlier in one of our earlier shiurim that it's not entirely clear in Judaism whether prostitution is looked at as inherently immoral. Certainly the Torah prohibits it, but it's not entirely clear. Torah prohibits a lot of things which are not obviously immoral: eating pig, you know, so that's, so that's the eating meat and milk. For a non-Jew, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, for us, the Torah said you can't do that. Not exactly clear whether prostitution is is considered self-evidently evil or it's just something the Torah prohibits to Jews. There are Midrashim, though, that say that Rachab had sinned. It says she sinned for 40 years, she, she engaged in this shameful conduct for 40 years. As a matter of fact, there's even a Midrash, there's even a Midrash that says that uh, later, we're going to get to a Pasuk later, that it says she lowered them with a chevel, with a rope, she lowered them from her window, from her chalon, Kibesa Bekir because her house was in the, in, in the, in the wall, in the, in the wall of the city. These three words, chevel, Chevel, Chalon, and Choma. Uh, so it says, so Rachav, Rachav told Hakadosh Baruch Hu, she did tshuva. She said, "I have sinned in three things, and uh, and, and but except my tshuva, because I did your know, mitzvah with these three things. What are the three things in which she sinned?" So I mentioned some midrashim seem to say that her prostitution was a sin, but this one version of the midrash says the three things she sinned. A very interesting midrash. It says the three things she sinned with were nida, chala, and hadlaka saner. So these three things were the, were the three mitzvahs that um, three, th- three mitzvahs that Chazal associated specifically with women. Nida obviously is a commandment to both husbands and wives, but it's considered a, particularly a woman's mitzvah, and it's her responsibility to take care of it, to keep track of it, and so on. Go to the mikvah. Ner Shabbos again, a man has to do it also if he, if he has no wife, if he's by himself. But it's, it's, it, in a family situation, it, it's traditionally the woman's mitzvah. And challah. Challah is a mitzvah to take off a piece of bread and give it to the Kohen or burn it as man as when you bake bread. Again, a man has to do it also. Well, we bake matzahs. We have men baking matzahs. We do it in the matzah bakery. But it's a, traditionally it's a woman's mitzvah. A woman typically baked. And challah, even today, challah is often associated with, with women. There's a famous midrash that says that Sarah Menu, the matriarch Sarah, that because she was particular about these three mitzvahs, that's why she said... That, that's why she had the the cloud on her tent was 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 uh, was a symbol of the shechina the 
So, so I'm not sure why Chazal are saying Rachav sinned in these three mitzvahs. Non-Jews before Matan Torah and non-Jews in, even today are not obligated in any of these mitzvahs in Nida or in Chala or in Ner Shabbos. So I'm not sure why we would say she sinned in those three things. Again, other midrashim say she sinned uh, in her professional capacity. Her work was a sin. But anyway, Rachav was saying that I know these people. I know that they have no hope of uh, resisting you. That their 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 morale has uh, has been utterly destroyed. And we know that Hashem Hu Elokim, Hashemayim Imal, Rachav was saying, I know that, she was saying, they know that, and, uh, or she was saying, they know that, and therefore, therefore we are doomed, and that's why I'm helping you, uh, you're, you're, God is on your side, and we have no hope of defeating you, so I am uh, switching my allegiance to you, and that's why I'm helping you, and I'm not, uh, I'm betraying my country. Now she said in Pasekid Beis, Ve'atah, Hishavu Nali Hashem, swear to me by the name of God, just as I have done chesed with you, I have harbored you, I have hidden you, I have lied for you, I have saved you from the king of Yericho. So you too, please do chesed with Beis Avi, and do a sign of truth for me. She was asking for essentially a quid pro quo, that I did something for you, you do something for me. What she was going to ask for, that's the next pasuk, she said, Please preserve the lives of me, obviously, but in addition to me, my father and my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all their, all their property, all their, all their, all their possessions. And save, and save us all from death. You're going to annihilate the city. I'm asking for the lives of me, my family, and our property. So it's noteworthy that back in Pontecute Bay's, when she said that, when she said that I have done chesed with you, and you and you please do chesed with me and emes do vasisim gamatelim base of the chesed unesatemli os emes and do emes as well. So what did she mean? So the Radak explains. Some of Rishim explain that the chesed is something you do, which you have no obligation to do. If I volunteer, I. Uh, I do a favor for you, a favor that you have no claim on me for, I, I, out of the goodness of my heart, out of my, out of my humanistic feelings, my religious feelings, I simply do a favor for you, that's chesed. MS is something that you owe, that you have a, that someone has, someone has a claim on you, he did something for you, you're bound by gratitude, by karzatov, you're bound to do something for them. So according to the Red Doc, she was saying, she asked for that you should do in base of the chesed with my family, my father's house, my family chesed, and give me os emes. According to Radak, she was saying, you're going to save my life, that goes without saying. That's just emes. I saved your life, you're going to save my life. That, that, that's emes, that, that's not chesed. I, mean, that, 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 I saved your life, of course you're going to save my life. What I'm asking you is chesed, what I'm asking you is to save my family's life. That's chesed. You don't owe my family anything, they didn't help you. That's chesed. And she was saying that I did chesed for you. When I saved you, I started this chain of, uh, of relations there. I did a chesed for you. I didn't owe you anything. So you're going to pay me back. That's MS. But also, just as I initiated chesed with you, you do chesed for me. And chesed means going beyond what I did for you and saving my family as well. That is how the... That is how the... That's how the Radak and a number of others... A number of others' uh, commentaries explain some understand the chesed a little bit differently. Some understand, I believe, that the chesed was the lives and the emes was the property. 
she saved only their lives, so their li- so her lives would be saved. I think I saw this in that Barbernell. He says that she saved two people's lives, not just one, so they would have to save not just her, but her family. That's also like a double, uh, double chesed. It's more than two people, father, mother, brother, sisters. All right, but uh, she saved both their lives, and they would save all her people's lives. That was all the MS. And the chesed was the property. The chesed was to leave them with, with their possessions, their, their station in life, and so on. That was the chesed. But either way, that's what she asked for. She said, just as I have done chesed with you, I want you to do chesed with me and do emes with me. And what she asked for was, again, she asked, uh, she asked that you'll save my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters. Save, save all my people. Save. Right. So that is an interesting question. Is that uh, he's raising the point that the way the Jews conquered Yericho was that they, they blew shofaros and they went through a, a, a divine ritual, divinely mandated ritual, and the walls of Yericho sank into the ground. So if if she was all if her house was in the wall, does that mean that her house uh, fell into the ground? So, yeah, we'll see about that later. I, I, didn't, I didn't work on that part of the... I, either they had to hide in a different house or only part of the... We'll, we'll have to see what happened there exactly. That's a good question, and we'll get to that, uh, we'll get to that eventually. So here she, asked that, uh, here she asked that their lives be spared, her, her lives, lives of her families, and so on. And uh, they, they, some, some of the Mepharsha mentioned, Barbara mentioned, she didn't have a husband. She was a professional Zona, so, so she didn't have a husband. And she had no children. I mean, Azona might have children, but apparently she didn't have children. She didn't ask for her children. She asked for her, she asked for her ancestors and her siblings, but not for her children. Okay, so maybe she didn't have children. It's actually Chazal say that Rachav eventually became the became the, the, the ancestress, the matriarch of many Nevi'im. According to one midrash, there were eight famous Nevi'im who were descendants of Rachav. Yecheskel, according to another version, was a descendant, a descendant of Rachav. She actually did eventually have children. According to one midrash, she married Yoshua and had uh, an illustrious line of, of, of famous Jewish uh, biblical figures descended from her eventually. But at this point, according to Abarnel, at least she had no children. That's why she didn't ask for their lives. And she was saying that the save my family, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and so on, good. That's what she asked. So now they responded, the spies responded, Vayomru Lahanashim. The spies said to uh, the spies said to her. Today they would probably have to say something like, "I have to get sign off from my superiors for that." You know, I'm not authorized to promise that or something. But here, you know, they, they had enough autonomy apparently to promise this. They said, The men said to her, They gave a solemn vow. She asked them to swear uh, by Hashem. They, they swore that they, they pledged their own lives. They said, Our lives shall be forfeit for yours. Well, we'll see what that means in a minute. If you don't uh, tell this to anybody else, you know, they swore her to secrecy that she couldn't reveal what they had, uh, this deal they were making. When Hashem gives us the land, yes, we agree. We agree to your terms. We will, we will do, we will do what you have asked us. So, what does it mean? Our lives are uh, for yours. The Farshim have different explanations. They said, if anyone tries to kill you. If any of, I guess, the Jewish soldiers, or maybe if your own people try to kill you for, for treason, if anyone tries to kill you, then we will 
we will try to, we will, we pledge to save you, to preserve you with our own lives. We'll give up our lives if necessary, if necessary to, to save you. The Radak says the same thing. If anyone tries to, uh, to kill you, we will, uh, we, we will give up our own lives to save you. What does it mean, uh, in, in, what does it mean uh, if you don't tell anyone? That uh, they were concerned, they were going to give her a sign uh, to, to put a, a special marker on, on her window to show this is her house, off limits, nobody, none of the Jews should attack this house. They were worried that if, if news of this uh, special sign got out, other people might do it to save their own lives, and the Jews would be forced to either not, not know who to save, to save, save everyone, and that would interfere with their mission to exterminate the city. So they said, where you have to promise us secrecy, we'll give you a sign, we'll give you a special token, but you have to make sure, we have to make sure that the, well, they'll have to make sure that nobody else will do this. The, the, way, the way the Red Doc puts it is he says, he says, um, sorry, the way the, the way the Matuda David puts it is, if you tell, if you tell about this oath, the thing hanging from the window, lots of people will do it. Alternatively, that the, alternatively, it means other people will hide in your house. So, other people will hide in your house. The Radak says that when they said, uh, when, when they said, don't tell, they don't mean don't tell that we were here. They didn't think she would do that, you know, that, that, that she saved them, because she, she herself was uh, implicated in, in hiding. She certainly wasn't going to tell that she was harboring enemies of the state. But it means that, uh, that she would... Uh, later, everyone would know. Later, when, 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 when she took everyone into her house, people would realize something was going on. But she said, uh, again, like the Masuda Stavid, she said, don't... Uh, other people who had houses in the same area and the wall would all start hanging those strings from the window. Don't tell anybody else the sign, because then they're going to do it. And we don't want anybody else copying you and saving their own lives. So this, this, we're going to give you a sign, but you have to promise to keep it secret. If you do, we, we promise to save you to the extent of pledging our lives to save you from death. So, Rolbach says the same thing, that, that other, people would, uh, other people would do the same thing. Or Rolbach would say they would hide in her house, they would, they, nobody would know who's her family, who's not her family. So, okay, so therefore that she promised not to reveal the secret to anybody else. And then if, if you don't, if you, if you keep your word, you keep your word, then uh, we will do for you chesed and emes. She lowered them by a rope from, from, from through the window. And again, the Pasuk explains, even though the gates of the city were locked, according to at least some authorities, they had locked the gates of the city. But she lowered them from the chevel. She bypassed the gate. She had a she, she had a way out from the window. And kibesa bekira choma v'choma hiyoshevus. And the, her house was in was in the wall. And the, again, it sounds like a double lushin. And then she lived in the wall. We'll discuss maybe another time what that what that repetition means. She lived in a, she lived in the wall, and the wall was her house. And she lowered them through the chevel. So this is what this is the version of the midrash that Rashi brings. We said she sinned with these things. So the midrash says she sinned in, in three things, and she would be saved by three things. So she, she used to have people come to her house via this rope. Not sure why she needed a rope. If she was a professional zona, I don't know why they couldn't just come in by the front door. I'm not I, maybe maybe they were, they were worried about photographers from the tabloids who would be trying to. Uh, put people's pictures in the newspaper. Oh, look, who, look who's at Rachel Mazona's house tonight. But okay, so she used to have people come through the window and through the ropes. She said, these three implements, I, I used to use them for sin, like we mentioned before. Some Midrashim seems to say that her, her career involves sin. 
And she said, with these three, I'm now redeeming myself. Rashi brings, she said, Rabbanu Shalom. Be'elu chatasi, be'elu timchali, with these three things, the, the rope, the, the window, the, the wall, the, this is how I used to sin with these three things. Now please forgive me, and uh, I'm, I'm doing a great mitzvah, I'm saving the spies for the Jewish people. We mentioned another midrash says the three things were nida, chalar, and lakas, and er. Okay, but this seems to be the simple version of the midrash, that the three things were the, she, she, the, the sinners used to, used to use those articles to get into the to get into the into her home with these three things she was now doing a great mitzvah and uh, she was now doing a great mitzvah and she, and she was going to atone for her sin there's a famous chat of the Gona Villa they, they bring hair from the Gona Villa this, and, this, and this refers to your question also about if she was going to be in her house in the wall and sank into the ground then what would uh, how would she survive so the Villa Gona refers to this pasuk I mentioned it's a, it's a blatant uh, the team is redundant, a blatant repetition. Her house was in the, the wall. And she lived in the wall. Yeah, if her house was in the wall, she lived in the wall. So the, the, the Villagone says she actually had the wall, the wall was thick, and she actually had a double house, two separate apartments. One was uh, her, her, her better known house was closer to the outer part of the wall, and she had an inner house which was recessed, so the wall itself was very thick, and her inner house was closer to the city and not really in, in the, the outer part of the wall. So she says that the, that's why her house remained intact when the wall sank. He says, right, he's, actually I'm not quite sure I understand the picture here, he says the inner part sank with the wall, the outer part did not. Um, half, half of it sank and half of it uh, Half of it sank and half of it uh, didn't sink. So I have to check this going to see exactly how it, which half was which. But he says she had a double house, part of which sank with the wall and part of which didn't. He brings from somebody else. He brings another shot. We talked about how she was trying to preserve the discretion of her discretion of her clients. He brings from another safer who says that the who is this? Rabbi Joseph Kedanki. That is that is someone who I do not know. But this, uh, this author says that the, she actually had a tunnel. She had a tunnel from her house through the wall that, that she used to send away uh, people so they wouldn't be accosted by, uh, by uh, nosy gossipers. Okay, but uh, whatever it is, she says that she let them out through, uh, through her window, and we'll, we'll, we'll see the rest of the story uh, in the next week. We'll follow up on this business about the double house, maybe. We'll see the rest of this next week.